This morning, I'm excited to continue our Advent series. Uh, when I was first asked uh, to speak, I'm always up for speaking on a Sunday morning. I, I enjoy the work and searching out scriptures and, and bringing the word to the church. Um, but I wasn't quite aware that, that we were in like Advent season. That would be the time that I'm speaking. So I asked Pastor Tommy, I said, well, what's my passage? He says, there is no passage. It's Advent and it's joy. And I said, oh. For those of you who know me, um, I fall more in the if you're happy and you know it, tell your face category of people. That's not to say that, and I know there's a lot of us in this room, you can see it throughout worship. I'm in the more like non-expressive joy. I'm in the more like my gratitude for who Christ is um, and what he's done, um, more the contemplative gratitude, more the, the inner reflection side. doesn't mean that I don't appreciate or experience joy, but I know there's some people in the room who, who can appreciate that. When we think of joy, um, it really is somewhat of a, a challenge for many people because there's different characteristics, and, and a lot of times we think of it as being this real expressive thing. Um, and, and you're like, well, that's just not my personality, so I guess joy isn't for me. Um, that is not the case, and thankfully, this season of Advent, we get to look at uh, not just joy as a, as a concept, but joy in light of the reality that our Savior has come. And so when it comes to joy, and as we want to think biblically, I, I thought I'd look up just some different opinions before we dive into our passage about what joy is. Christian joy, says John Piper, is a good feeling in the soul. It's produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. When discussing joy, then, oftentimes we think about a feeling. This is true. But our feeling follows after understanding something logically, after understanding the truth, especially when it comes to the concept of joy in the scriptures. Now, in my life, I have had some amazing experiences, some very intense experiences of a great feeling of happiness, almost overwhelmed with joy at an event. Um, you will see a picture behind me. This picture was taken in 2015 at the Lions-Packers game. Um, to the 2015 Lions-Packers game, I was living in Toledo um, amongst a bunch of Lions fans. So that's how bad football is in that part of the world. People choose between the Lions and the Browns, and they go with the Lions. So actually, 2015, though, um, the Lions had the Packers numbers, and the year before that as well. It was a little bit annoying time to be a Packers fan. And um, I'm at the game, you can see that picture, I'm at the game not exactly enjoying myself. I'm with three Lions fans that I went with and just myself, surrounded by Lions fans who are just loving how horribly things are going for the Packers. In this game, it is um, 20 to nothing 
about the time I took this picture, halfway through third quarter. The Packers are getting absolutely killed. I'm getting heckled. I have no backup with the people who are there with me. They're there with the crowd heckling me, laughing at me. Um, but if you guys remember that game, and I'm sure as I tell you about it, you will. The Packers come back and score 27 points. Now, this game is significant because what took place at the end of the game was known that year by ESPN as the sports play of the year. There was no time left. The Packers were down 24 to 20. Time had expired, but the last play had been a penalty on the Lions, which meant the game could not be over. The Packers had one more play. Aaron Rodgers drops back. From the 35-yard line, the Packers 35-yard line, he launches the ball 65 yards into the end zone that I'm sitting in, about 15 rows up. Richard Rodgers catches the pass as time expires. Packers win on a Hail Mary. Most unbelievable pass ever. And so in that moment, I experienced some radical, unbelievable joy. Take a look at the picture. You will... uh, I have no idea who those guys are. I have absolutely no clue. We were going nuts. We were going wild. Um, and as, as we're going wild, like, I'm like, okay, let's take a selfie. I don't know their names. But it was just one of these times where it was like, okay, we're in the midst of despair. It's painful. I paid 60 bucks for these tickets. Cheap, I know, for, for a Packers game, as you guys know. But it's Detroit again. And I'm like, what a waste of money and time. But here we are. I, I turned around, tried to talk some smack to the Lions fans. It's like they knew something bad was about to happen. They left. They were all gone. I had nobody to shove it in their face. But if, if our hypothesis is correct, then that joy is a feeling, then what is producing that feeling for us? This is where we find our understanding of the scriptures. The context of our passage today is the word of the Lord coming to the prophet Isaiah, to the people of God who will soon be entering a time of exile. This is a lengthy exile, first by the Assyrian Empire, then by the Babylonians. They will be uprooted from their home. They will be forced into hard labor. And the temple that was built by Solomon, that had taken so long and that they had finally created a dwelling place for God amongst their people would be in ruins. Now this happened because of their sin and rebellion against God. And our Advent passage picks up at a place in chapter 35, which describes the future redemption of these exiled people. So the exile hadn't happened yet. Isaiah had been warning and warning and warning them. And he said, bad things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. But in the middle of these warnings in chapter 35 comes this message of hope and redemption. Verse 1 says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. 
First, here we see the vivid imagery of a dry land being glad and a desert rejoicing. This prophecy given by Isaiah um, has very layered meanings and layered fulfillments. What I mean by that is that the fulfillment of this prophecy often takes place in different times and in different ways. So prophecy by Isaiah, as we're dealing with in 35, comes through when the people return from exile. It also is fulfilled when the Messiah first comes, the advent that we are celebrating. But there's also fulfillment of this prophecy when the Messiah comes a second time and makes all things right, which is the advent we are waiting on. What's described here in these first two verses is the celebration of a world, a creation redeemed from its bondage and suffering. We know that due to Adam and Eve's sin, God's creation was plunged into the curse as well as us. Genesis three seventeen through 19 describes it as this. It says, because you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And we know that this prophecy is a fulfillment of creation itself desiring and longing for its redemption. Our passage in Romans goes on, it says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we see that this weary world will rejoice. This weary world is transformed. What is this weary world going to be transformed by? Verse 2 says, It will be transformed because it will see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of God upon his return to make all things right. Joy in creation is a response to the future glory of God revealed it is coming, or what can be called the second advent. And because of his coming, those humans living in the conditions of oppression from sin will be encouraged as it goes on in verse 3 to describe this encouragement. It says, strengthen weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing with joy. Here again, this is an encouragement of future hope. We know this because not quite at this time have we seen the full judgment of God come to this world. So this is describing the feeble, the weak, the weary, being encouraged in hope because your God is coming And he's coming in vengeance. He's coming with recompense to repay for what's been done. 
This description reminds me of Revelation 19.15 describing Jesus in his return to judge, rule, and reign on this earth. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury, wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This morning, if your hands are growing weak from endless toil, from oppressors, be strengthened because your God is coming. If your knees grow feeble by bearing the burden of this broken world, stand firm because your God is coming. If your heart is anxious, be strong because your God is coming. And then we get a picture of the physical transformation of our bodies. It says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What an amazing description. What an amazing hope. It seems to me, these first few scriptures, that joy is a physical change, a physical response described here in the scriptures, response to something that's been broken, to something that's been lost, to something that has suffered. Joy is a response to God's moving and God's power in our life to redeem broken things. Again, we get more imagery of this transformed world. It says, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. This new creation, this transformed world, when Christ returns, will really be a sight to behold. Now, I grew up um, typical AG. I don't want to get into a bunch of eschatology, but I used to make a joke in college uh, because we grew up with the general understanding that Jesus would come back, we would all disappear, and um, then the world would just like burn up, and he'd make a new world, and we'd live on that one. When you read these passages, uh, well, I would make the joke, like, I, I'd joke like I was going to throw trash out the window while I was driving, and people would be like, don't litter. I'd be like, doesn't matter. It's all going to burn anyways. We had, we had a massive oil spill on the Gulf Coast, um, and I was, like, actually pretty upset about it. I'm like, oh, this poor animal suffering, but I would make the joke. People are really mad and worked up. I'd be like, who cares? It's just going to burn later anyways. But that's not, really, that's not really the picture we get. We get a picture of God returning to his good creation and restoring that creation to beauty and goodness, to reflect the love and intention that he had in making that creation. He will intentionally restore it with an eternal restoration. It's the same thing with ourselves. The innocence of children when they're born and babies, we know that they're born sinful, but you don't really see it displayed too much in a newborn. And you just think about the potential and the capacity for brokenness and sin that will come and the struggles that the children will have. 
But true beauty takes place when God restores his children that he's created. When he restores his children to goodness through his grace. This new world seems like a sight to behold. Streams in the desert, burning sand becoming a pool, thirsty ground filled and drinking water. In this new kingdom, it says, a highway shall be there, in verse 8, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This new world sounds amazing. But as I'm Thinking about it, this new world sounds like it fits more in the category of the advent of hope, right? This new world is something that is very much something to look forward to. We are hoping we have hope in a redeemed creation. We have hope in a redeemed person from sin. We have hope in a changed physical body when God returns We have hope in justice from Christ. But this is supposed to be the advent of joy. We find hope in the future redemption of creation, in the future justice of God, in the future kingdom of the easy way of righteousness, free of sin or enemies. But it is in the first advent, the first coming of Christ, that we find joy. We are joyful because of what Jesus has already accomplished. Remember, I said at the beginning, these passages, these prophecies can also often have layered meanings and layered fulfillments. This passage isn't strictly about what is to come the second advent. It is about what and who has come. We are joyful in our salvation because we are sure that our God has accomplished already what he promised in Isaiah 35. Let's look back at some of these promises. Verse two, it says, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Lebanon at that time was known for these massive cedar trees, these great firs, these huge trees. If you know anything about the construction of the first temple, Solomon had these massive trees transferred in and used in the construction of the temple. There's just a sense of majesty, just a sense of like beauty used with these trees in the construction of the temple. And so presently, this prophecy is describing to an exiled people whose temple will be destroyed, that the glory of this temple would be restored. After the exile, a few years later, the second temple would be built again in 515. 
Ezra 3.7 describes this. It says, So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the tyrants to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So here we see a fulfillment, but we see this fulfillment before Christ even comes. We see that the trees of Lebanon, the glory of Lebanon, will return in the temple before Christ even comes. But we spent a lot of time in John, and hopefully some of you remember from John 2, even more glory and majesty of the temple is revealed in the person, Jesus Christ. Remember, the temple is a place where heaven meets earth, where God convenes with his people. We celebrate and use a term at Christmas called Emmanuel, God with us. The person of God was present with us. The temple was fully restored and never ends and will never suffer destruction because it came in the person of Jesus. As John 2, 19 through 21 describes, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to try to build this temple And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. We find joy in Isaiah 35 because the temple that was destroyed because of the Israelites' disobedience and sin has been reconstructed and the beauty and the majesty of God is seen in the person of Jesus Christ in the first advent. We can see the beauty of God's goodness and his grace described in verse two in the first coming of Jesus. We don't have to wait for future redemption of this dying world to find joy because our Redeemer has already come. And again, it continues. Verse 3, strengthen weak hands and make firm feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now, verse 3 is describing the bondage and the hard work and the toil that the Israelites will suffer because of their sin. In their exile, they will go to work for someone else to pay off their ends and their means, not for themselves. But doesn't this redemption, this prophecy, sound familiar to the quote of Jesus who is quoting Isaiah chapter 50 in Luke 4.18? What does he say? He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and liberty to those who are oppressed. If you have been set free by this Jesus, you have reason for joy. 
if you have been healed in any physical way, at any time, you have reason for joy. If the good news of the gospel has saved you, you have reason for joy. We don't have to wait for God to come and make everything right to experience the joy that God has promised his people. We just have to realize what he has done. We have to realize the beauty of his gospel. This is why in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, we are told to rejoice always. Then again in Philippians, we are told twice, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, he says, rejoice. And Paul is talking to people at various points and various times in history. Oftentimes, they're in the middle of suffering. They're in the middle of trials and persecution. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. He says it again. He emphasizes it. This is not glib. This is not a personality trait. This is not shrugging off reality. This is based in the truth and the reality of the first coming of Jesus and all that he was able to accomplish and all that he did. We get further encouragement because we know that in the way of Jesus, joy is something that is obtained. It's not temporal. How do we know that we are following this path to eternal joy? 35 verse 8, it says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall be belong to those who walk on the way. Again, we see a future promise presently realized in the first advent of Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am that way the truth in life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do we know that we are on the highway of holiness, that we are on the highway to what is described, the end result being this obtaining of joy? Experiences of, of happiness and good times are, are fleeting. People who seem joyful, I would say it's more a personality trait, but there are People who come to know true joy and they come to know and obtain joy, obtain joy. This is not something that, that is giving away, that comes and goes. This is something that you are in possession of. You obtain this joy by following the way. You obtain this joy by getting to know the way. You obtain this joy by drawing closer and walking on the path of the way, of following the life of Jesus and knowing his truth. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, joy is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. Joy is not fleeting. Joy is not something that will be lost. But joy is something that we hold on to. It's not something that we use to just overlook the reality of what it means to be in this fallen world, the reality of sickness, the reality of war, the reality of 
so many negative things, it's not just overlooking it. It's looking higher and looking above and looking back and seeing that our hope is in the first advent of Jesus. It's believing everything that he did and said was true. And it's believing that God will have the final say, that we can trust that he will be true to his word, that he will come and bring justice, that he will come in vengeance, that he will set everything right, that the healings that aren't realized on this earth will finally be fully realized, that heaven will be such a joyous place because our God who promised to save did so 2,000 years ago. We live in joy. We experience joy because of the truth of Jesus and because of the hope that Jesus will someday return. This morning, um, as, as we conclude, and we're going to go into a time of worship, I want to encourage you to find joy, to find true joy in all that Christ has done, in all that Christ has accomplished. And because you can trust that what God has said has come to pass, you can trust that all he promises to do will come to pass. If you're not realizing your miracle yet, know your miracle will come. Know that this life is temporary, but there will be an eternity where God's promises are truly fulfilled, where sighing and sorrows flee away in his presence. But my argument this morning is that we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait for some future redemption to be realized. But we can look to the one who has come already and truly realize the joy of our salvation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word.